Good morning, everybody, and welcome to Legal Defense with Kirk O'Bear. It's just Kirk O'Bear this week. Uh, John is out doing an investigation today on a big trial that uh, he and I both have coming up, so you have me flying solo today. Uh, did want to talk about uh, the events of this week earlier. Uh, there was a jury trial. As you know, we've been covering a little bit uh, regarding a defendant by the name of Theodore Edgecombe. This was going on in Milwaukee County Circuit Court. And earlier this week, a jury found him guilty of first-degree reckless homicide in a road rage, road rage, road rage, shooting uh, where he killed lawyer Jason Clearman, who was a an immigration lawyer, a fairly prominent immigration lawyer in uh, Milwaukee. And there were a lot of uh, controversial things that happened in this trial, and I'll tell you, uh, John did quite a bit of coverage on this on Court TV. Uh, if you caught that, he had some very uh, insightful analysis on what was going on at the trial. And I think you can still see those clips if you log on to Court TV. But uh, I just want to talk a little bit about what happened in that case and make some observations about um, some some aspects of it that are revealing about problems that we have in our uh, criminal system. So just a little bit of background. This is a case where local counsel, who is, uh, in my opinion, a very talented, uh, intelligent, and um, devoted attorney, uh, was asked to be the local lawyer for the lead lawyer, who um, actually is not from Wisconsin, but somehow the family of Mr. Edgecombe got in touch with this fellow and had him, uh, presumably, I would imagine, for a fairly high fee, come in and uh, do the case with the local lawyer sort of just riding side saddle. And lo and behold, as this case is progressing, people start digging into this uh, lawyer's background and there's surprisingly little information out there about who this lawyer is, what kind of experience he has, and <clears throat> what was determined, with just a little bit of digging, is that this fellow um, is a very recent graduate from law school, and if he has done any you know, homicide trials in the past, they're certainly not visible in terms of public record, and uh, he has an a quote-unquote office address in Texas. Um, but there's no actual... My understanding is there's no physical office there. So this is kind of like a ghost lawyer, you know? <laughs> and and we see this sometimes. There are... It's kind of like one of the bad things about the way that advertising and the Internet works is that there's very, very little regulation on this type of practice where someone holds themselves out to be whatever they say they want to be. You know, I'm a seasoned, experienced lawyer. That could, in that person's opinion, consist of six months of practice, you know, or a couple years, and not reflect an actual um, intricate understanding of all the complexities in something like a homicide case. So, you know, it's very compelling, uh, the argument that there should be some kind of... Um, 
qualification standard before someone takes on the representation of somebody who has so much at risk. And, and really, for both sides, that's important because if a lawyer messes up in trial, there's a good chance that there will be an appeal taken by the defendant and based on what we call ineffective assistance of counsel. That generally is not a, a winning uh, argument to make because, again, it's there's so much leeway. And, and understandably so. I mean, you've heard the old saying, there's more than one way to skin a cat. Well, likewise, uh, you ask 10 different defense lawyers how they would handle a particular case, and there might be very little in common in those 10 different opinions. Uh, and different takes on it, different strategies, different personalities involved. It's such a loose concept as far as how all that works. But um, this concept that someone who just happens to have a law degree can swoop in, uh, take somebody's money, and just kind of wing it <laughs> based on how much money they got paid, <clears throat> you know, is really offensive to the system and the fact that we just don't have any standards. Um now, I will say this, uh, and this is a shout-out to uh, the people that devote themselves to uh, public defense and the public defender's office. Before somebody who works for the public defender's office or is appointed by the public defender's office is allowed to represent somebody in a significant case such as a homicide trial, there are standards that they employ to ensure that the person has the correct level of experience and qualifications. But that's an internal thing, and that's just done so that the public defender's office can do their best to provide quality representation. There is no such regulation or you know standard that's out there as it relates to the private legal community. And again, I find this frustrating because people like John and myself that have spent, you know, over 30 years, you know, I've been a lawyer for almost 30 years, John's been a lawyer for over 30 years, you know, accumulating the years and years worth of um, just different scenarios that you encounter, the legal issues that come up, getting a feel for how it it goes. And unfortunately, you see people that, again, just happen to have a law degree, hang out a shingle, very little experience, but they want the money. And they'll basically portray themselves as having a, a truly, you know, winning record when in fact that's a loosely <laughs> defined and, and oftentimes misrepresented aspect of the case. So this was a situation where, you know, pretty clearly uh, the, this lawyer that, that came in from wherever, I mean, he's not from Texas, but he's got an office address apparently in Texas, and uh you know, takes on the defense of this very complicated case is, um, again, you know, it's, it just doesn't seem fair. And I said it's not fair for both sides. What I mean by that is obviously the defendant doesn't get the quality representation that he really deserves, but also if because of the poor performance, and it really was poor performance in this case, there are appeals down the road that doesn't give you know, the victim, uh, the victim's family, any kind of uh, closure on the case because it's just going to drag out litigation. Yes, there was a verdict, but, you know, there's more to come uh, because of the, the errors that were there. So, 
you know, ideally, and I know that there is no such thing as is the ideal anywhere, but if there were such a thing, the case would be well tried. The the both lawyers on both sides would do it fairly. The judge would make sure that things are being done properly, according to the rules, according to the law, and that um, neither side suffers as a result of the lack of experience that uh, either side might have. And of course, you know, the DA's office, they're going to put, and they did, they put a highly seasoned, very experienced um, homicide lawyer, a guy who specializes basically in homicide trials. I looked it up and I think he had done like over 50, which is a very large amount to have done in your career. I haven't done that many, even probably, I don't know, 40 or something, but but uh, this, you know, the prosecutor is definitely well-armed and, and, you know, good, good for the system. But you throw in this, you know, for lack of a better term, some joker that uh, really doesn't know what he's doing. And it really just kind of upsets the entire, the integrity of the entire process. So why don't we? Why don't we have some kind of standard out there that um, in order to represent someone in a, a very high risk case like that, really, again, for the integrity of the system itself, why don't we have those standards in place? Well, you know, the arguments against it go, well, you know, then you're interfering with people's ability to conduct business or commerce in, you know, with the public. Well, you know, <laughs> I get that, but, um, you know, this is similar to brain surgery, uh, and, Trust me, you know, for a doctor to run an office where they have a clinic and they, or they have hospital, you know, they have surgery privileges at a hospital, there's all kinds of things that you have to do in order to show that if you're going to do brain surgery, that you're not just some kind of hack. You know, it's built into the system that there are those protections against quackery, you know. So uh, we'll come back and talk more about how the trial went and some other examples of lawyers holding themselves out to be more experienced than they really are uh, when we come back right after these messages. Hey, I just want to comment briefly on a couple of other things. Um, in case you're unaware, you can listen to Legal Defense on uh, most podcast uh, apps, such as Apple Podcasts. You can listen to it on whbl.com uh, and go back to the archives or listen to it live. You might be doing that right now. I don't know. Or on the airwaves right here on 1330 and 101.5 um, on the FM dial. So just a reminder, you can listen to this show and past shows um, at your leisure. You don't necessarily have to be up and at them at uh, 8 o'clock on a Saturday morning. I think it's more fun that way. I mean, you can have your coffee, I'll have my coffee, and we'll talk. We'll have coffee, we'll talk, you know. Remember from Saturday Night Live? Um, getting back to this uh, Edgecombe case. Well, people were starting to kind of get suspicious about what was going on here because, as I said, I know the local lawyer very well in the case, and it was apparent that uh, decisions had been made that he was basically just going to be there and the defendant and this fancy defendant's lawyer that's, that came in from out of town appear to have basically shut him out of the process, best as I can tell. 
and I do, I mean, I know a little bit more than, than what's publicly known about this just because I'm familiar with the moving parts of the process. But what I can say publicly is that um, I think there were some definite disagreements with regard to strategy, um, some of the basic things like does the defendant take the stand or not, those types of things. But one, <laughs> this is, it hit me when I was listening to the opening defense argument in the case that this sounds awfully familiar. Where have I heard this before? I mean, this sounds like something that I've actually heard somebody else say. And some super sleuth out there um, figured out that I think it's about the first 20 minutes or so of the defense opening in this Edgecombe case was practically a verbatim copy of Johnny Cochran's opening argument in the O.J. Simpson case. So think about this, you know, uh, someone's going into a trial, probably not prepared, panics and says, hmm, let's see if there's a really good opening statement that I could sort of purloin or plagiarize. And, uh, you know, copy one of the great lawyers from the past. Now, hey, there's nothing wrong with mimicking someone else's style or utilizing some of the same logical points that have been made in other cases. But, you know, this is just one symptom of some of the things that went wrong with this case. And, it, you know, right from the very beginning, there were all these um, overtures that this was another version of the Kyle Rittenhouse case that had just, you know, has just recently concluded not too long ago in Kenosha. Um, oh, and by the way, th these are not similar cases at all. It's just that, uh, <laughs> you know, there. I think that this lawyer had it in his mind that he could somehow pull off what the uh, defense did in the Rittenhouse case. Now, if you paid attention to what happened in the Rittenhouse case, that was an extremely detailed, very um, specifically pointed factual disputes and legal arguments that, you know, frankly, were very, very well presented by both sides, by talented, experienced attorneys. Um, but you heard rumblings in this, when this Edgecombe case was coming, that this was, you know, another chapter in that same sort of theme. And I think that there was some glory seeking here, to be honest with you. Um, that's my opinion, you know. Um, but it harkens back to, I don't know if you uh, recall us covering um, on our show many years ago, there was a guy by the name of uh, Joseph Rakowski. And he is notorious for having um, accepted a case, not accepted a case, uh, taking money from a family and doing a case, uh, and which was a homicide, an intentional homicide case in Washington, D.C. And this guy had been out of law school a very, very brief period of time. I don't recall the exact number of months, but it wasn't very long. He graduated from Toro Law School. Nothing against Toro Law School, but it's often described as what you might call a fourth-tier law school. I don't think that's an official term. I think it's just a derogatory thing, you know, to distinguish it from Harvard and Yale. But uh, this guy, Rakowski, goes off to Toro Law School, gets his law degree, passes the bar, 
Um, not the DC bar, by the way. This He just passed a bar exam um, somewhere. And then asked to uh, be admitted what we call pro hoc vis, or vice, I guess you could say. And that means um, with the sponsorship of a local attorney, an out-of-state attorney can come in and conduct litigation as a visitor to the court. Uh, in other words, somebody who's not licensed in that state or a member of the bar, local, state, statewide, or otherwise, can be allowed to practice as long as there's a local attorney that is licensed in that jurisdiction sponsoring the attorney. And, you know, theoretically, that's supposed to be a safeguard against, um, you know, people coming in just fraudulently and, you know, landing in uh, at the airport, going to the courthouse and saying, hey, here I am. I'm a good lawyer. Um, <laughs> and also just so the judge has some involvement in that process as well. You know, so the judge has to approve an out-of-jurisdiction attorney coming in. And they're supposed to be, you know some uh, demonstration of the person's experience and, and capabilities. And, and ironically, let's say this, this guy did not come in from out of town and it was just a Washington, D.C. licensed attorney. There'd be no inquiry whatsoever from the judge about the person's qualifications because they have apparently met the standards for that jurisdiction, which could be utterly lacking other than a law degree and, uh, and passing the bar. So this guy uh, ends up somehow getting hired on a very serious intentional homicide case in Washington, D.C. This goes back to 2011. Um, so if you recall this hitting the news back then, this is basically the way that that case went. And there was local counsel, but again, this was someone who was just there to sit at the table and, and not really participate, but... You know, it was the key uh, to open the door to get into that jurisdiction was this this local lawyer. So um, as the trial starts in this 2011 homicide case, um, the, this lawyer, jo Joseph Rufkowski, ends up, you know, he's, he's acting um, like he doesn't really know what he's doing. The judge makes a ruling regarding some toxicology report that the defense wanted to get into evidence that it's not coming in for a variety of reasons. One was there hadn't been an adequate showing of relevance. There was also, um, it appeared that there had not been measures taken to lay an appropriate foundation for the exhibits. The right witness wasn't there. A number of different things led to the judge saying no that's not coming in. And the theory behind it was that the victim of the homicide was whacked out on PCP or something like that. And how that laid into the case, it still, you know, it wasn't necessarily directly on point given the facts of the case. Well, after the judge rules that, no, this, this report isn't coming in, you haven't done the things you have to do to show its relevance and to actually get it admitted, the lawyer goes on to talk about it anyway um, in the case. And the judge takes has a sidebar. You know, if you've been in court and you've seen them when the lawyers go over to the side and talk to the judge off the record where it's not being recorded or transcribed, that's, you know, a sidebar. That's what that is. So the judge takes uh, 
the defense prosecution and the defendant over on a sidebar and says, Hey, what's going on here? Um, you know, I ruled on that, that motion and it was uh, the motion to suppress all that was granted by me, uh, based on the prosecution's motion that you shouldn't be allowed to use this. And now you're mentioning it. What are you doing? And the answer was something along the lines of, well, I, I, thought you said the report couldn't come in but that doesn't mean i can't talk about it and the judge is flabbergasted and he's like do you understand what a ruling is when i say that this isn't coming into evidence have you experienced this sort of phenomenon before in court um and it becomes apparent as the trial progresses that this lawyer is is lacking any substantial understanding of the way the rules work, the the process works, how to present evidence, how to present a case, the very nature of what rulings from the bench mean, and uh, and so on. Well, we'll keep the discussion going, but first we have to listen to these commercial messages. Welcome back. Well, the topic of today is, again, the um, when an inexperienced or... Um, an attorney that that wishes <laughs> they could get in on a big case at an early point in their career where they really shouldn't be doing that you know how there's really no mechanism to prevent that from happening so again looking at this the, the Edgecombe case that just happened as well as um, this example going back to 2011 in the Washington DC case we were talking about before the cake the uh, break so getting back to that case after the judge had ruled that this uh, toxicology report isn't relevant isn't coming in it still gets mentioned by the defense lawyer the defense lawyer claims oh i thought that you just meant the report the piece of paper isn't coming in but i assumed that i could still talk about it judge is astonished um says what do you think uh, uh you know my ruling meant then you know if it's not coming in you can't talk about it either because it's not evidence and how are you going to get this in evidence so bit by bit, piece by piece, um, as, as the trial's progressing, the judge is just kind of suspicious about, you know, the background, qualifications, etc., of this lawyer. And apparently there was, it wasn't delved into very much when the court granted the pro hoc fees application for this lawyer to practice there. Kind of reminds me of the movie My Cousin Vinny. Do you remember how um, the judge, Fred Gwynn, uh, rest in peace, uh, was the judge in that case. And he's constantly suspicious of the Joe Pesci character's uh, experience level and qualifications and does some digging. And, you know, there's this whole thing that happens where he gets the name wrong somehow. And he's just, uh, Joe Pesci's just trying to buy some time so that he can try and win the case. You know, that's kind of a comical example of what can happen and does happen in real life in some of these situations. So at some point, again, going back to this 2011 case, <clears throat> the judge pulls everybody aside again. And he's like, he addresses with the defendant. He's said, do you want this lawyer to continue representing you based on the things that have been happening so far? In other words, kind of giving the defendant a way out in case he wants to have a redo. And the defendant says, nope, nope, I'm good. And you know, I'm sure we know why he said that. Um, this is conjecture, of course, but it's because that defendant's family had come up with money to pay this guy to come in and do this job. 
And most defendants in that situation aren't going to know the difference as to whether someone's doing a great job or not, because it's the intricacies of the legal system that one is maneuvering. And, you know, that's why the qualifications of, of uh, an attorney are particularly important, you know. So <laughs> at some point, there's a disagreement between the local lawyer and the out-of-town lawyer, and it's apparent to the judge that there's some conflict going on on the defense side of things. They have another sidebar, and this time the, the defense lawyer asks to be permitted to withdraw from the case. And mid-trial, you know, in the middle of the trial. And that's a fairly um, brash maneuver because um, that type of motion is practically never granted. If it were freely granted, think about it. You could just say, oh, this isn't going so well. I'm out of here, you know, type thing. Uh, no, I mean, there's supposed to be... Um, measures in place so that that kind of thing doesn't happen but here lo and behold the lawyer's saying i i you know this is not working this is not going the way i thought it would and the judge goes on the record and basically declares a mistrial uh and states that uh he was astonished at the lack of um qualification that this particular defense lawyer had and that the even though it's an extreme measure he found that it was in the interest of justice to uh, grant a to order a mistrial and start over again at a future date because of the fact that the defendant in that case could not and was not receiving a fair trial because of the woefully dismal performance of that defense lawyer and if you remember this story breaking the news, the thing that was kind of shocking about it is that that lawyer, you know, hot on the heels of the judge dismiss, you know, finding a mistrial because it was the defense lawyer's terrible performance that resulted in that. This guy goes on Facebook and brags about the fact that he, quote unquote, secured a mistrial in a homicide case. Um, yeah, he secured it all right. It was based on him, the judge, having no confidence that he could do the job. And lo and behold, it was the lawyer's first trial ever um, in his career. And what a doozy, you know, to mess it up that way. But again, I know I raise this all the time, and sometimes it's like beating your head against the wall. Judges have a very limited ability to screen or try and, you know, prevent someone from making an appearance on the case. And, and these are two examples where, you know, there, there is a very weak rule out there that, that uh, again, the pro hoc feast rule, where it's simply all that's required is that somebody from out of town got a hold of a local lawyer and asked that local lawyer if they would sponsor the uh, appearance for that out-of-town attorney. And, and, and th I've had that come up before where someone from out-of-town says, hey, I want to come in and do this case. Uh, can you sponsor me in? And I've done it, but it's only after vetting the case very, very carefully because, you know, I feel responsible for uh, making that representation to the court that I'm going to sponsor this person in. Um 
So that's kind of how it's supposed to work. But are there any real rules behind that? No, there aren't. Not at all. But judges are very um, reluctant to interfere with that process again because if it, the defendant is there saying I want this person on my defense team, the judge judge is typically going to be very very reluctant to interfere with that choice that a defendant wants because after all, if the judge denies that request and it's not uh, based on good cause, that very well could be something that gets appealed and gets the conviction reversed. There's a plethora of cases out there where judges have to deal with requests from defendants to do something um, relating to their defense representation. And really, judges have to honor that to the best they can. Now, a little footnote to that, or I would say perhaps an exception. But we see many cases where defendants wish to represent themselves. And judges are equipped with you know, a sort of standard set of questions that they can ask, and then it's up to the judge to determine if a defendant, a non-lawyer defendant can represent himself at trial. And after all, you know, we're used to lawyers being involved in this process, but, you know, up until Gideon versus Wainwright, um, the United States Supreme Court case that guaranteed representation uh, for anybody who was indigent, but, you know, before that, all indigent people just represented themselves or had volunteer lawyers representing them or they had to pay the lawyer, you know. So it was a very common practice prior to the creation of the public defender type concept that people would, in fact, represent themselves. But given the fact that an indigent person or someone that lacks the financial means to hire their own attorney has the absolute right under the Sixth Amendment to the Constitution to have counsel present, it kind of ups the ante on a judge's role in making sure that when someone doesn't want that, that they're making a wise choice. So, again, we see this in case law all the time where someone asks to represent themselves. Usually that is granted, but only after the judge asks a number of questions to ensure that Number one, you know, the defendant is capable of understanding what's going on in court on a basic intelligence and education level. But secondly, that that defendant understands the grave risks involved with um, self-representation. And there's some mechanics that it doesn't matter if the guy's Einstein and he's defending himself. That's not the point. It's that, you know, you're waiving essentially your right to remain silent and not have to make statements in the case if you're representing yourself. I mean, you have to communicate with the jury and the judge, right? As opposed to having a spokesperson there that will do the talking for you. So in those cases, what typically happens is the judge will grant that request, but will make a very full record of it. And then sometimes you see somebody appealing saying, oh, he shouldn't have granted my request. I asked him to represent myself, but the judge should have not let me do that. So now I want a, a different trial and I want to do it all over again because the judge was wrong by granting my request. Hmm. All right. Well, we'll be back right after these messages. Welcome back. So we're talking about, we were kind of going into this area of self-representation versus um, the defendant's choice of lawyer. 
And I'll tell you a story that goes back to the early days of my career when I was a defense lawyer in the military, when I was JAG. And it happened occasionally where somebody I was representing, and of course the way it works in the military is it's one of your uh, basic rights under military law is that you get an experienced and well-trained lawyer who is on active duty. But of course it, it can be imagined and perhaps you know, th there isn't anything wrong with this view that you wouldn't want somebody who's on active duty, who is presumably part of the system, uh, representing your interests, you know, when it's the, <laughs> the government against you, you've got this government lawyer, right? Well, and I get that. I always made a point of making sure that my clients understood, even though I wear the uniform, I am 110% on the side of the defendant and will do anything and everything to protect their interests. So I usually got past that hurdle pretty quickly in anybody I was representing, and I never had anyone that didn't want me on the case and wanted somebody else. That just never happened. But I, you know, I think there were a couple of times when I'm representing somebody in a court martial or something like that, and just to make sure that there's that we're doing everything we can to win the case or or best represent this person's interest. They get the idea that they want to bring in a civilian lawyer, usually somebody that has hung out a shingle somewhere, you know, in the town near the base. In this case, it was Colorado Springs. And bring in somebody that may or may not have experience and just have this person kind of be the civilian attorney who's the showboater. And I can tell you one time in particular when this happened... I had a complete strategy for how I was going to handle the case. I had worked it out in great detail. My investigation was rock solid. I had my witnesses all prepared. I had litigated several motions. We had the upper hand in this case, and it was an attempted homicide case. And for lack of a better term, uh, the civilian lawyer that my client wanted to be assisting in this case was a complete train wreck. Um, didn't know what he was doing. And it was very clear to me that he was just collecting a paycheck from this client when he had, you know, well-qualified counsel to represent him. You know, so I make this analogy because sometimes there's this belief that um, depending upon how that lawyer holds him or herself out based on what, a phone call, an office meeting, something like that, that they, you know, get a good vibe. And again, I'm coming back to this, this argument that I make that when it comes to criminal defense, we're not usually just talking about someone's, you know, money at risk, like we are in the civil realm. You know, when we're, when people sue each other, it's all about money. That's what it is, Right. People sue each other because they want money from each other and they're fighting about money. That's how all that stuff works. So, you know, obviously, when it's all about the money, it's there's a whole different realm. But And not to belittle those types of cases, but the truth of the matter is that when someone's freedom and something that can affect them more profoundly than the loss of money for the rest of their lives, meaning a criminal conviction confinement, and who knows what, depending upon the severity of the case, uh, 
why on earth don't we have any kind of standards that protect um, defendants from someone making a nice sales pitch to them? And, you know, there are those that argue there are things built into the system, such as a complaint can be filed with the Office of Lawyer Regulations. Okay, sure, fine. But that's after the case is done. Oh, they can appeal an alleged ineffective assistance of counsel. Okay, true. But that, among all other things that one can do after they've had poor quality representation, the odds of prevailing are extremely minimal. Extremely minimal. And you know this if you listen to the show with any regularity, that your odds of prevailing go down dramatically every level that you go up in the appeal process. Your best shot at having a fair day in court where your rights are most protected are when you're really in court, in circuit court, in front of a real judge and a real jury. The things that happen after that are appellate judges that don't want to interfere with and won't interfere with any kind of judgment call that's made by a judge. And to some extent, any kind of judgment call that's made by the lawyer. Like I said earlier in the show, you know, 10 different lawyers will have 10 different ways that they pursue a case. And that's permitted because there is no robotic way of going about doing these types of things. And it's not like there's a checklist. They can't hand a defense lawyer who has no experience or very little experience um, you know, a checklist from the court that says, oh, by the way, you know, just to make sure you cover all your bases to effectively represent your client, do all of these things. <laughs> of course they don't do that. Defense is an art and a science. You know, there's the science behind it is comes from the technical skills, the familiarity with the letter of the law, knowing what the prosecution can or can't do, and being very decisive and direct on how you approach those things. The art behind it comes with instinct and, frankly, years and years of experience. Now, I look back to when I was a younger lawyer. I did everything I could to learn as much as I could, to be vigorous, to be vigilant, to, be, to work hard. Um, but there's no substitute for actually doing the trials over the years that you accumulate your instincts. And, and what would be wrong if we had some kind of rule where before you can represent somebody in a serious criminal case, be it a sexual assault case or a homicide or any of those, you know, what we consider to be very serious crimes, that there be some kind of threshold requirement that someone's done a certain number of trials or has practiced for a certain number of years. Um, there are those that argue that, and I've heard this argument before, that a really good criminal defense lawyer, lawyer never needs to go to trial because they get good results all the time. Well, as long as that person's representing 100, you know, as long as all of that person's clients are actually guilty of what they're accused of, and as long as the evidence is overwhelmingly strong and has no question about the integrity of the search process, the questioning of witnesses, the questioning of the defendant, all the things that are implicated in a case, there's hundreds of issues. In, in practically any case, I mean, a typical shoplifting case isn't going to have all those types of things, but anything where you have to maneuver the minefield of issues out there, it, it simply requires experience. That's all there is to it. And, and as I said, when I was 
a younger lawyer, and yes, I, I, I believed I could do pretty much anything. I was very headstrong, and I did work very hard. But looking back, I know that uh, there's no substitute. I mean, there, I before I did any case that was a, a real big deal, the Air Force made sure that I had as much training and experience with other matters that I could possibly get um, before being entrusted to do that. So, you know, this is something that I've been working on for years. I don't know if I'll ever be successful in this, but um, I've, I've reached out to people that are involved with um, the American Bar Association standards for ethical practice and standard rules of conduct in court. And occasionally we hear, we get some, you know, momentum going when there's a case where you can demonstrate that someone was wrongfully convicted based on the counsel's performance. But hopefully by the time I end my career, I will have um, successfully convinced the powers that be that there needs to be some kind of protection against um, lawyers that don't have adequate experience and training taking on a case. And the argument, again, is always commerce. You know, hey, I've got a law degree. I can do whatever I want with it um, to the detriment of somebody who doesn't know any better and that it's basically like a snake oil salesman. All right. Sorry if that was, you know, kind of harsh, but I do feel strongly when I see other lawyers that really don't know how to handle a case attempting to do so. And yeah, you need experience, but don't take on a, a very serious case if you, if you don't know what you're doing in spite of the temptation to take the money from the family. Anyway, so that's my rant for the week. Um, John will join us next week. Uh, I know he regrets not being here, um, but he will be here next Saturday at 8 o'clock a.m. right here on 1330 and 101.5 WHBL. It's been Legal Defense with Kirk and John. Have a great weekend.